This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and as we do each week, it is time for Martin Gibson to join me for Media Matters. This is where we take a look at things that have been out and about in the media over the past week here and abroad and sort of give our little take on it, particularly from a cultural standpoint. And as again, Marty, there is plenty to talk about um, across the week. And oh, I think, the, yes, I know. There is. Good morning. I sent you a photograph after last week you went out and bought the weekend papers, so I promised that I would do the same. Uh, How did you get o- on? Well, um, I sent you a photo before I dove in. I bought three newspapers, and uh, the only positive was the fact that the Dominion had sold out, so I didn't have to go there. But I did get the weekend Herald, the Sunday Herald, and the Sunday Star Times. We uh, do have a fire here, so I've now got fodder to keep me going to get the fire started <laughs> for the winter. So that's good good news. Uh, recycling and all of that. Uh, but there was, yeah, it was interesting. There was uh, obviously the usual suspects were covered. Yeah, I did uh, grab those. Let's kick off with the most sort of the big political news story of the week, which was the valedictory speech from Jacinda before she goes and heads off to her vanity appointments here and abroad. How did you, you took a look at this. Yeah, I I, um, I listened to uh, part of it and then read the other part. Yeah, it's re- it was revealing in in some ways. You know, it's interesting to get her perspective on on me and what a misguided fool I am, and uh, how suppressing my opinions isn't suppressing free speech. Uh, in fact, the the uh, the quote that I found that summed that up was. Those who try to dress up the issue of disinformation as being an attempt to silence people, if you pick that to bits, those who dress up the issue of disinformation. Now, the issue of disinformation is her shutting down information that she doesn't agree with. As being an attempt to silence people, it might be that, but are ironically themselves shutting down a discussion that must be had. You know, tie yourself in knots to um, talk about how someone complaining about their viewpoints being shut down are guilty of shutting down a discussion. Debate is critical to a healthy democracy, but conspiracy is its nemesis, and the answers aren't easy. Now, by conspiracy, she doesn't mean the meeting of people in secret to determine what happens in the world and then not put it to the vote, as she does with her handlers at the World Economic Forum. What she means by conspiracy is discussing there being conspiracies. Mm. Debate is, um, the answers aren't easy. So having witnessed what it can do to the corners of our beloved country when perhaps we considered ourselves immune, I can tell you they are answers I will keep looking for. And she's there alluding to her new Her new role with the Christchurch call, yeah. Christchurch call. And it's, it's, the language is so important to to the neo-Marxists. The word call is associated with religion, call to mm. a spiritual thing. Um, and that's revealing as well. It does come back to, as you said, the silencing. 
um, you could tie yourself up into knots over that. We all know, for those of us who have been on the opposite side of disinformation, one person's disinformation is another person's, you know, viewpoint or opinion. So it is again, as you said, the bigger questions: who gets to decide these things, and why all of a sudden have they appointed themselves as the arbiters of what information is allowed and not allowed, and who gets to label it misinformation or disinformation at all? The challenge is not to play on the chessboard that they give us. And we've got to keep emphasizing, we're not saying our view of reality is correct. What we're saying is we've got to have open debate, Mm. which means opinions that might not be that palatable to those in leafy suburbs and worshipping Chardonnay socialism as a new religion. There was there's an old communist saying that um, a, f- a Russian friend told us, and they said we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit like that, isn't it? You know, I think a lot of Kiwis now, those ones that are having those disinformation conspiracy conversations over water coolers and coffees and offices and and smoko times and and places like that, because I suspect that there's a lot more going on than they would care to admit or would like to think. That those, I think that's where we're getting to. I think a lot of Kiwis are looking at what's going on at the government. It's like, well, you can pretend to say that and you can pretend to say that this is what we want you to do and we'll pretend to listen and we'll mm. just continue and carry on. And The most confronting thing about the past few years is it's revealed that the large section of the people who live alongside us who want to be told what to do. Mm. Yeah. And and that that's what they're comfortable about. And and so that kind of labeling, that essentialism, is calculated to get people in line who like being told what to do. It's a threat that you'll be outside the herd mm. if you even go down the rabbit hole and look at this alternative reality, which is incredibly dangerous. And that's enough to keep most people um uh, on peace, so to speak, and to marginalise anyone who anyone who speaks out against the government, it's, and and that's the 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 core part of that narcissistic compassion uh, that you see in Trudeau, you see in Macron, you see in in uh, Jacinda Ardern. That Chris Hipkins probably hides reasonably well at this stage. At this stage, she did continue on after that to then uh, want to remind us all of the importance of not forgetting. The work on climate change does she not? Yeah, yeah, and and as someone who's got a degree in in uh, in this, and I've studied the energy budgets in the atmosphere at, at university level, and was told by my professors in the early nineties that it was uh, a very small proportion of uh, the energy that was actually in the atmosphere was regulated by carbon, and they said it, it's a UN tax gathering initiative. And and that coloured my, well, it certainly gave me some cynicism as I saw it unfold. And I was probably one of the few journalists in New Zealand in the early 2000s who was speaking out against Al Gore's hockey stick graph uh, yes. and saying that that's very, uh, that's not going to happen. Ironically, it didn't happen. But that same paper I was working for now wouldn't print me saying that it Mm. It's not going to happen. Wouldn't it be interesting to actually go back and have a look at the inconvenient truth and actually see how inconvenient that truth really was? Yeah. 
again, it's it's all right there. The fact that the, the narrative stays in place and there's still endless um, headlines that are based on computer models and projections that inevitably tell tell us what researchers want them to tell us. You can make a model say anything you want, and what the funding is there to get them to say is that uh, we're in a climate emergency. Mm. Mm. Oh, see, I hate that word climate emergency. It's that the, the use of hyperbole in all aspects of this is just so tiring. Well, it's so- tiring for us, but it's important to remember that it's traumatizing for children and it's calculated to be so, which uh, really, um, like so many things in education, is, uh, is horrifying. That the world's about to catch fire and burn. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that colours all of their decisions and, and straps them into short-term thinking, which is surpri- uh, well, unsurprisingly convenient to politicians. Mm. Yeah, well, as you mentioned last week, I mean, the word, as you said, uh, was it Chanel Lal drew a long bow using the word genocide to discuss what was happening to trans people in this country. And funnily enough, that word has popped up in many places mm. uh, across multiple news channels, uh, both here and overseas. And, you know, I'm still waiting to see where the bodies are piling up on that one. But, you know, and, and it's and to me, it just cheapens what are very real issues for all people, you know, whether they be people going through transition or the influence, undue influence placed on children, as you said, by a fear. It is it is not a positive, a positive place to be. I suspect a lot of people uh, were hoping that the door did hit her on the way out. I mean, she's still going to be um, trading on her international profile. Right. What's next? Let's close the door on that. Yes, let's close it. Yes, let's close the door on our Jacinda. Next up on the list, actually, briefly, because I know I'm sure that Chantelle will touch on this in her show. In the, I think it was this Herald on Sunday, the four-page, four-double-page spread on the alternative realities of uh, Chantelle Baker, I was impressed that David Fisher felt like he really has dived in on this and it is a very comprehensive piece about uh Chantel and you know her rise in terms of highlighting how she has become at the forefront of the New Zealand media landscape and the work that she has done in recent years which has been incredible one of the things that I found really interesting like it's, it's a big read so if you haven't got it it is worth having a look so they touched into the work that she's been doing and I found this really interesting Baker's empathetic broadcasts from outside the beehive, this is referring to the protests, saw Mm. viewers flock to her 100,000 follower Facebook channel. Across that month, more people watched her videos than two mainstream media outlets combined. On the final day of the protest, Baker's live stream views soared to one million. Yeah, that's the problem right there. And, and, you know, just, I mean, I I read this whole thing as well. It was, as you say, an incredibly long read. But there's something creepy about a middle-aged man going after an enterprising young woman who is, and you can see him really struggling to articulate what it is she's actually doing wrong. There's these dark allusions to spreading misinformation, of course. There's the characterization of what he does as reality-based media, Mm. which is rich. The way it's arranged is calculated to be 
kind of bitchy, you know. So yeah, yeah. It, it, but what I there were so many questions though that he didn't touch. Like that paragraph, that paragraph to me is the big question that's screaming out of that paragraph is why? Why is she gathering that number of views and interactions over that time? Ahead of mainstream media, and why why mainstream media failing or legacy media failing to engage with viewers and New Zealanders? And New Zealanders obviously wanted information. They obviously wanted to see what was going on, and they weren't getting it. So they were turning to Chantel to be able to get that. Now, some I'm sure some journalists would say that the reason that they didn't do that is because of the hostility that was at Freedom Village and they felt that they couldn't do that. Well, there were actually journalists that did. I mean, Barry Soper, I know, went in there and he spoke to people. And Melanie Reid uh, from mm. Newsroom went in and did a long-format interview to which she was then chastised for that piece. That just says to me the gaping hole. If people are not engaging with you as a legacy media outlet, why aren't they engaging? And do you think you should redress that? Well, this gets back to to the psychic defence of characterising people against you as evil or misguided by. And you know, he talked a lot about how a lot of what she uh, does is informed by far right American media, and the reason for the similarity in message is because there's a similarity in agenda in the states in europe here in australia it's a global effort to bring about this near feudalist state and and the media are fully complicit and unquestioning about it and that's why there's a gap in the market and that's why they're scurrying so hard to shut it down and and you're going to see people made an example of you 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 kill the chicken to train the monkey as the chinese say another comment is, was in regard to what they're now calling the rise of global anti-vax influences i found that rather interesting that is certainly a term that i've not heard before obviously he's come to this with a very very specific agenda of where she sits as and in, instead of actually unpicking and looking at the success that she's created i just felt that there was a feeling of derision across the entire thing that you know how on earth could she have created this because she has this particular set of views Again, without asking the million-dollar question at why people are disengaging from the legacy media and turning to alternatives. Another comment was, by adopting traditional media terms such as holding power to account, Phelan says it allows those pursuing a particular cause to use the language of accountability, openness and transparency to justify their practices. Maybe that's perhaps those in legacy are not doing that themselves any longer, but yeah, yeah, it kind of trailed off, didn't it? After all of that piss and vinegar, there was a lot of basically justifying what she was doing unwittingly. Yeah, as you say, they were mm. talking about the role that legacy media should be fulfilling, showing two sides of a story, when that's something that they've tied themselves in knots to avoid doing. Yeah, and then, of course, the fact that uh, she hasn't gone through what is now considered, obviously, approved journalistic training. The AUT senior journalism lecturer, Dr. Greg Treadwell, says Baker is an activist. I don't think she's a journalist. I actually think that's quite 
rich from him, to be honest, being somebody as you are yourself, having not gone through a university-based course in order to train as a journalist, but trained on the job by getting down in their boots and all and doing the work, that's completely unfair. She has been down there doing the work, having a look for herself. She spent a lot of time here in Hawke's Bay, again, literally donning the gumboots and having a good look and seeing what's going on and reporting stories that just simply weren't being covered. How is that not journalism? Well, and and she raised money to get water and and he kind of, he um, scoffed at that by saying, well, the military had a desalinization plant up and running by the time it got there. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know how you'd look yourself in the mirror having to write that. Yeah, what drive there is to do that. The the other thing is it's not, as I said earlier, just aimed at Chantal Baker. It's aimed at anyone else who might dare to do the job that the anointed are there to do, to use Thomas Sowell's phrase. Of course, they had to bring in Kate Hanna of the Disinformation Project because where is a good media story on conspiracy theorists and disinformation without bringing in that girl of disinformation? Uh, she says here, Baker calls herself a news personality and has been described by Hanna as having a Fox News kind of vibe. Chantel Baker operates as a useful idiot. I'm not saying that she is a useful idiot, but operates as one. The things that she has decided to take a strong personal stance on over the last 12 months are indicative of the strings being pulled. Yeah, there's more projection, isn't it? Yeah. Who's the useful idiot, really? Wow, Kate, just let that mask slip a little bit there, Dylan. This is from a woman who, in a documentary herself, said that, you know, she felt the importance after she'd gone into archives and looked at things to go through a sort of a woo-woo hand-washing ceremony in order to cleanse herself. So, you know, if we, we're, we're not the target market for for this. True. The, the, target, the target market for this are people who don't want to be outside the herd. Mm. So that's why it looks so flimsy it's not aimed at us no quite true so I think we're gonna I think that's enough well that's just I think enough said on that and I think anybody reading that hopefully who can read it objectively will actually sort of see through the holes I mean you don't necessarily have to agree on what Chantelle is necessarily covering or the opinions that she holds but I think anybody any realistic person will actually surely look at the efforts that have been made and think, well, actually, she's achieving all of this. Why is she achieving this? And I felt there was a lot of jealousy there in legacy media and they're struggling to understand why someone like Chantal, who's put all this hard work in with her team to create Operation People, they're filling a gap, aren't they? They're filling a gap in the market that legacy media and just not filling for people. No, And and yeah, there, there is professional jealousy. Yeah, it is a thing. And someone has to train you know, a lot of the journalists I worked with had trained seven years. You know, they do a, a degree and then they do a, a diploma on top of it. The, the way that it probably works best is when you get world experience and then you just do a diploma. You know, you're saying hopefully people will be able to read that and see through it. The, those figures that we talked about last week where over 50% of children emerging from the NCEA education system can't read they're enumerate and they they can't um they can can't really write um so so you know if you say 50 percent of new zealanders are unable to read that's a couple of steps back from being able to read and comprehend 
And it's even more steps back from being able to read, comprehend, and form a cogent criticism of what you're reading. Now, so you had a piece on education you wanted to talk about this morning. It wasn't even a piece. I, it was a conversation I had with a teacher where, you know, I told him I was shifting one of our kids. And he, he said, basically, he do, doesn't want his child to go to the school he's teaching at. And one of the examples he gave me of what's wrong with the system, as well as the open plan classes and the absolute chaos he has to work in was he told me an anecdote about having some really talented kids in his class and he'd gone to the deputy principal and um, asked if he could give these kids some extension work. I uh, was told with a sigh, no, their cup is full. And that comes down to that strand of thought that's informing educational policy in New Zealand that educating talented uh, kids drives inequality or inequity. Mm. Now, when you've got kids, you realize what a quixotic aim that is because you can't even get equity within a family. All kids have got different talents. You know, there are two ways of looking at talented children. One is that maximizing their realization of potential is essential for their long-term happiness. It's good for New Zealanders. Uh, helping children to fulfill their potential is one of the best ways to give your life meaning. But the other way you can look at it, helping talented kids reach their potential makes other children feel bad and it just creates inequality and results in people who will only end up voting Tory. You know, the second philosophy rules our education system and it does so with the same spirit Pol Pot had when he ordered the execution of People who are educated or wore glasses that comes from the same taproot. And it's got a... I worry with kids at school now is that with the destruction of meritocracy in schools, so the the drive for kids to aspire to achieve has been dumbed down. Like, as you said, offering kids extra work is sort of frowned upon in some sectors that that in itself is actually kids want to strive to stuff. You know, they want to actually have meaning. So yeah, if they're not fooled by the participation trophies. No. And if they are, and if they, if you take that away from them, then why are they actually there? You know, like they, they want to strive towards something and whether that striving towards something is uh, being getting a prize at the end of prize giving at the end of the year, or whether or not it's participating in the school production and winning out a role in audition, or whether it's being an athlete and succeeding in sports events, whatever that goal is for that child, having something to aspire to is what will get those kids up and out of bed and to school in the morning. And that, I think, that aspiration has been just sucked out. Um, well, it's, it's, not only, it's not only the joy of winning that you're taking off uh, children, it's the, lo- the lesson of losing, mm. which is equally important. And, and it's something I spend a lot of time doing with my own kids is getting them really happy with failure. The speculation that parents saw more of their kids' education during COVID, and that's created a groundswell of dissatisfaction. I think that's an understatement. We, we got, uh, I remember when my eldest daughter was at, at the same school, we got a note saying, oh, we're trying this new math system that's uh, with some researchers out of Massey University. So we looked it up, and on the page about this project, it's got in big letters, equity. There's that word again, not, not just 
equality of opportunity, but equity. And yeah, a lot of dancing around on the head of a pin, like, well, you know, maths is a major driver of inequality because, you know, some kids do really well. So if we mix them up, you know, we can get the top ones doing worse and that will theoretically bring the bottom ones up. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's having a major effect on teachers as well. I mean, this guy I was talking to, he's thinking he wouldn't mind going to Australia. He's thinking of leaving the country. I speak to nurses, I speak to teachers, I speak to a lot of people like that. And it's not idle. It's not an idle thing. He's a man who'd had enough. It is definitely something I think with education that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, now, did you have anything else on your list of things before we jumped over onto something on mine? I could tell you there was one uh, little uh, article that caught my eye that I tacked at the bottom in case I, you asked me just such a question. Oh, there you go. Um, fewer than 4,000 babies were born in Italy last year, the lowest number since the 1861 unification of the country, uh, highlighting worsening demographic dyna- dynamics in an economy beset by high levels of public debt. This is never in the news. In fact, we've still got people talking about how there are too many people and still got that anti-human vibe particularly coming out of the Greens. But that's going to be a big story. And, you know, as usual, us Generation Xs, you know, I think the days of the free-range old people's home (laughs) will be over by the time we get there. The fall in birth rates, uh, again, is a lot like excess deaths. It's one of those things that there's, I think it's a very complex issue, and there are some indicators that they're able to attribute to the reasons why, you know, um, in terms of lifestyle and finance and and well, such. Well, fertility and, tanking and testosterone levels tanking yeah. and porn or other areas you could look. Uh, yeah, and then and the and I mean, you just need to look at in terms of fertility intervention in the last sort of twenty years. That's you know growing exponentially, and now throw in. Uh, additional medical interventions that could potentially have had an effect on that. It is, as you said, it is a crisis that's, I think, about to unfold in the next sort of 20 well, years. Well, one, so. one of the things that uh, Ardern noted in her valedictory speech was that she'd increased the uh, benefits to solo parents by $200. And much as you have to, I guess, admire the amount of effort it would take to raise children on your own, I mean, I, I can't imagine how tough it is to do that and work uh, full-time. It's not the best for kids. And uh, you'd hope that there's a corresponding effort to encourage family units to produce more children that they then nurture and turn into great Kiwis who mm. are um, heading for the, to meet their potential. Mm. If there's not that effort there, where we're heading is really not a place we want to end up. Yeah, definitely the erosion of the family is something that is uh, quite strong. Uh, One I want to finish off with, and I couldn't, well, I could believe it when I saw it, is actually a story, a story out of the UK. And the headline, this is from the Daily Mail. Moment, six police officers raid a pub and seize 15 gollywog dolls after a customer made a hate crime complaint. So for me, this story is 
important because we push these hate crime laws. This is the other side of these hate crime laws, right? So in the bizarre moment, the police stormed a couple's pub and seized the gollywog dolls, saying the toys were suspected suspected of a hate crime. The toys were suspected. The toys were suspected of a hate crime. Oh. Mm, there's some sort of big naughty and biggies we were going on in that pub after hours. Benice Riley, 61, was quizzed by six, count them, six officers after police received an anonymous complaint that the White Hart Inn in Grays, Essex, she and husband Chris, 64, who is currently abroad, had displayed the collection of 15 dolls after receiving them as gifts from customers over the years. On Tuesday, Essex police raided the pub, confiscated the dolls, saying they were investigating a hate crime. They also took a book about the history of gollywogs. CCTV shows six officers walking into the bar in question. Miss Riley at the table, one inspects the bar before taking the dolls and putting them into an evidence bag. And there is an image in there, and these dolls are behind the bar. It's just, a, it is like a little collection that you often see in English pubs, you know, whether it be whiskey jars or what have you, they happen to have uh, these gollies. Ms. Riley said apparently a visitor to the pub had been quite upset about them and made a complaint. Chris is away abroad and will be until the middle of May. Police said as he is the licensee, they need to interview him and have taken the dolls away in the interim. The couple have run the White Hart Inn for the past 17 years, taking over the boozer when it had become run down. The raid comes after a couple after the couple refused to remove the blackface dolls after the local authority received a complaint in 2018. 2018, yeah. I mean... Good you kill the chickens to train the monkey. They want you to know the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. That That's the phase, the drive against diversity that we're now seeing. And again, it's all projection and, and paradox. What they're doing, what they're aiming for isn't diversity, as they say. It's the opposite of that. Mm. They want diverse opinions. And, these, and also, too, there's, there's a couple of things about the story that interests me. One is the fact that the, the the police, and I don't know what it's like in the UK currently, but I would have thought six officers would be well-pressed to be deployed doing other things, just saying. So that, for starters, I mean, six officers to go in and collect, you know, to go in and bag up 15 dolls based on a complaint for it's a hate theater. crime. It's theatre. It is theatre. Because you know uh, that in that part of the country, there's a lot going on in terms of demographics being changed, often under threat. You could imagine that very little is being done about that, Essex being where it is. Yes, Essex being where it is. So you have somebody has had an offence at seeing these dolls, but where does someone being offended by a doll, which, and I mean, the if you, to see the photograph, these dolls, uh, most of them are knitted, made from knitting patterns from the, what I call the Enid Blyton tradition of dolls. Having had some experience with these dolls and the offence caused in my professional life, it's really interesting to see how those that see the person that has actually made the complaint actually personally offended by those dolls, or that are they making the complaint on the perceived offense from other people that they're supposedly protecting? So, this whole sort of white knight, white savior mm. complex that goes on out there, where do you draw the line between one person's offense and another person's reverence or adoration? You know, well, there's so, a pretty direct uh, 
correlation you could make between that and the use of the n-word for instance you know where it's acceptable for uh, people of color to use it and not for white folks and i guess you could make the same argument uh, mm. about about that although my my kids have have over various times had uh, had those dolls and they've I mean, as you say, there was a phase where there were a lot of them knitted, so there's quite a few of them around. There are, there are. And yes, I just, I looked at that and I thought, what a sad indictment on British culture that they are. You were asking, you were asking, you know, was the person who uh, made the call to police really offended? Yes. I mean, again, there's a parallel. Is the person who makes the call to the secret police really offended that they've heard someone speaking against the party? Or do they just want to be like someone dropping a brick off a motorway overpass? They want to see a bit of chaos and feel that, you know, they can watch it unfold and not necessarily um, feel that they had anything to do with it. I just can't help feeling that whoever made that complaint has, you know, has gone back to their own little circle and echo chamber uh, and sort of beaten their chest with great virtue saying, this is what I've done. Isn't this a wonderful thing? When really, where is the harm? Where is the harm? It's vital that we do keep speaking up, even though I think both of us do this with a certain deep breath beforehand, thinking, oh, you know, when are we going to trigger a response like that? Even though there's nothing that I can think of that we say that's objectionable to anyone except those who want to implement that particular agenda. Indeed. Well, as always, there's been plenty to talk about this week on Media Matters. I am sure that we will have even more for you next week. And remember, if you've got something you want us to talk about, you can send it to us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you, Marty. I will see you again this time next week. Take care. Look forward to it, Marie. Thanks again and uh, have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to Counterculture. With Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.